Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 219, Thomas Reed on First Principles and Common Sense, Part 1. Thomas Reed was a Scottish philosopher who lived from 1710 until 1796. A graduate of the University of Aberdeen, he became a minister in the Church of Scotland in 1737. In 1752, he moved into academia, becoming a professor at the University of Aberdeen, In 1764, after publishing an innovative and influential book called An Inquiry into the Human Mind on the Principles of Common Sense, he became a professor at the University of Glasgow. In 1781, he resigned and devoted himself to writing two books that were based on years of lecturing in that university. The first is called Essays on the Intellectual Powers of Man, which was published in 1875. The second book was called Essays on the Active Powers of Man, which is published in 1788. Thomas Reed, I would say, is my favorite historical philosopher. One thing I value about him is that he wrote these books of philosophy when he was old. The book that you're about to hear a portion of was published when Thomas Reed was in his 75th year. And so he values accuracy, truth, steadiness of judgment more than cleverness. And that's more than you can say about many philosophers. In philosophy, you tend to get points for cleverness and originality, whether or not your theory is true or close to the truth. The reason I'm presenting all of this is because it struck me that a lot of speculation on the topics of Trinity and Incarnation is truly unhinged from common sense. To exaggerate just a little, people will assert just about anything if they think that thing is necessary to defending their particular understanding of the Trinity or of the Incarnation. Good sense is too often left behind in these discussions. This is how it is with pet theories. When you have a theory that you're very proud of, that you think is very important, which is very often your own theory, you'll make all kinds of crazy moves and adjustments in order to defend that theory. You'll move heaven and earth, as it were, to show that it is defensible, at least that it is apparently coherent. And speculations on these topics are often, in fact, I would say typically, to some degree, supported by bad philosophy. Philosophy not well done. The standards of argument tend to be very low, and people have a hard time separating a trivial but true point from a wildly controversial and implausible assertion. People have a hard time separating what's obvious from what needs arguing for. Here, I think, is where Reed is useful. He's giving a general Christian approach to theory of knowledge. He's making the observation that some things we know on the basis of other things, but it looks like then there has to be a rock-bottom level of things we know not based on our knowledge of other things. God must have made the human race able to have a certain level of knowledge if we're to be morally responsible, and if we're to be able to get around well in the world. He calls this most basic level of human knowledge first principles, or the principles of common sense. As you'll hear in these podcasts, 
Reed thinks that such things are the proper starting points for any argument. And really, these are going to be foundational principles in any discipline of human knowledge. Along the way, he gives you a lot of examples of what he thinks are first principles. And some of them are more plausible than others. He doesn't claim to give an infallible list or an exhaustive list. But he's just fleshing out a general, theistic, conservative approach to understanding human knowledge. He's trying to help you learn to pick out things that don't need arguing for, things which are properly presupposed in an argument. Now, what did Thomas Reed think about the Trinity and about the Incarnation? In truth, I really don't know. Seems to me that he was determined to avoid these subjects. That could make him a sort of theological skeptic, just somebody who takes a dim view of Catholic traditions on these topics. Or it could make him a closet Unitarian, like the famous philosopher John Locke. We do know that Thomas Reed had read some of the works of the famous Anglican Unitarian Samuel Clarke, and other people, like Richard Price, who had similar Enlightenment views, were Unitarians. They had been convinced by the Bible. Reed's critic Joseph Priestley was a Unitarian. But was Reed? I don't know. He seemed to want to keep his nose out of theology. That might have been because his job would have depended on him not rocking the Orthodox boat. In any case, it seems to me that what he says about human knowledge stands on its own two feet. And I think these ideas are relevant to all sorts of theological debates and even to how one reads the Bible. If there are things that all humans should be able to know, surely this is relevant to interpreting the Bible. We're going to expect these authors to know these things. And we're going to be reluctant to attribute theses to the authors that are inconsistent with things that everyone knows, or rather, things that everyone should know. Because this sort of natural knowledge that Reed is talking about clearly can be corrupted in various ways, particularly by culture and by party spirit, as Reed will explain. Now, after I've presented all that I want to present of Reed on First Principles, so not in this episode, but in a future episode, I'm going to stick my neck out and do what Reed never did to my knowledge, which is, I'm going to apply this theory of first principles to theories about trinity and incarnation. I think there are some things which every human ought to know, things which are self-evident, which are violated by various trinity theories and by various incarnation theories. But before I do that, I think it's important to understand this general approach to human knowledge and why, in general, it's important to separate the obvious from the theoretical, that which does not need arguing for from that which does need arguing for. Without further ado, then, my abridged excerpts from Thomas Reed's Essays on the Intellectual Powers of Man, dealing with the topic of first principles or common sense. Essay 6, Chapter 2 of Common Sense The word sense in common language seems to have a different meaning from that which it has in the writings of philosophers, and those different meanings are apt to be confused and to occasion embarrassment and error. Not to go back to ancient philosophy upon this point, 
Modern philosophers consider sense as a power that has nothing to do with judgment. Sense they consider as the power by which we receive certain ideas or impressions from objects, and judgment as the power by which we compare those ideas and perceive their necessary agreements and disagreements. The external senses give us the idea of color, figure, sound, and other qualities of body, primary or secondary. John Locke gave the name of an internal sense to consciousness because by it we have the ideas of thought, memory, reasoning, and other operations of our own minds. Francis Hutcheson of Glasgow, conceiving that we have simple and original ideas which cannot be imputed either to the external senses or to consciousness, introduced other internal senses, such as the sense of harmony, the sense of beauty, and the moral sense. Ancient philosophers also spoke of internal senses, of which memory was accounted one. But all these senses, whether external or internal, have been represented by philosophers as the means of furnishing our minds with ideas, without including any kind of judgment. On the contrary, in common language, sense always implies judgment. A man of sense is a man of judgment. Good sense is good judgment. Nonsense is what is evidently contrary to right judgment. Common sense is that degree of judgment which is common to men with whom we can converse and transact business. Seeing and hearing by philosophers are called senses because we have ideas by them. By uneducated people, they are called senses because we judge by them. We judge of colors by the eye, of sounds by the ear, of beauty and deformity by taste of right and wrong in conduct by our moral sense or conscience. This popular meaning of the word sense is not peculiar to the English language. The corresponding words in Greek, Latin, and, I believe, in all the European languages, have the same latitude. The Latin words sentire, sententia, sensa, sensus, from the last of which the English word sense is borrowed, express judgment or opinion and are applied indifferently to objects of external sense, of taste, of morals, and of the understanding. This inward light, or sense, is given by heaven to different persons in different degrees. There is a certain degree of it which is necessary to our being subjects of law and government, capable of managing our own affairs, and answerable for our conduct towards others. This is called common sense because it is common to all men with whom we can transact business or call to account for their conduct. The laws of all civilized nations distinguish those who have this gift of heaven from those who have it not. The last may have rights which ought not to be violated, but having no understanding in themselves to direct their actions, the laws appoint them to be guided by the understanding of others. It is easily discerned by its effects in men's actions, in their speeches, and even in their looks. And when it is made a question whether a man has this natural gift or not, a judge or jury, upon a short conversation with him, can, for the most part, determine the question with great assurance. The same degree of understanding which makes a man capable of acting with common prudence in the conduct of life makes him capable of discovering what is true and what is false in matters that are self-evident and which he distinctly apprehends. All knowledge, 
and all science must be built upon principles that are self-evident. And of such principles every man who has common sense is a competent judge, when he conceives them distinctly. Hence it is that disputes very often terminate in an appeal to common sense. While disputing parties agree in the first principles on which their arguments are grounded, there is room for reasoning. But when one denies what to the other appears too evident to need or to admit of proof, reasoning seems to be at an end, an appeal is made to common sense, and each party is left to enjoy his own opinion. There seems to be no remedy for this, nor any way left to discuss such appeals, unless the decisions of common sense can be brought into a code in which all reasonable men shall acquiesce. This, indeed, if it be possible, would be very desirable, and would supply a desideratum in logic. And why should it be thought impossible that reasonable men should agree in things that are self-evident? All that is intended in this chapter is to explain the meaning of common sense, that it may not be treated, as it has been by some, as a new principle, or as a word without any meaning. I have endeavored to show that sense, in its most common and therefore its most proper meaning, signifies judgment, though philosophers often use it in another meaning. From this, it is natural to think that common sense should mean common judgment, and so it really does. What the precise limits are which divide common judgment from what is beyond it on the one hand and from what falls short of it on the other may be difficult to determine, and men may agree in the meaning of the word who have different opinions about those limits or who even never thought of fixing them. This is as intelligible as that all Englishmen should mean the same thing by the county of York, though perhaps not a hundredth part of them can point out its precise limits. Indeed, it seems to me that common sense is as unambiguous a word and as well understood as the county of York. We find it in innumerable places in good writers. We hear of it on innumerable occasions in conversation, and as far as I am able to judge, always in the same meaning. And this is probably the reason why it is so seldom defined or explained. It is well known that Lord Shaftesbury gave to one of his treatises the title Census Communis, an essay on the freedom of wit and humor in a letter to a friend. After showing, throughout the treatise, that the fundamental principles of morals, of politics, of criticism, and of every branch of knowledge are dictates of common sense, he sums up the whole in these words. That some moral and philosophical truths there are so evident in themselves that it would be easier to imagine half mankind run mad and joined precisely in the same species of folly than to admit anything as truth which should be advanced against such natural knowledge, fundamental reason, and common sense. And here, dear listener, I skip some lengthy quotations from Fenelon, Cicero, Hume, and Joseph Priestley. Reed continues, From this cloud of testimonies to which hundreds might be added, I apprehend that whatever censure is thrown upon those who have spoke of common sense as a principle of knowledge, or who have appealed to it in matters that are self-evident, will fall light, when there are so many to share in it. Indeed, the authority of this tribunal is too sacred and venerable, and has prescription too long in its favor to be now wisely called into question. Those who are disposed to do so may remember the shrewd saying of Thomas Hobbes, 
When reason is against a man, a man will be against reason. This is equally applicable to common sense. It is absurd to conceive that there can be any opposition between reason and common sense. It is indeed the firstborn of reason, and, as they are commonly joined together in speech and in writing, they are inseparable in their nature. We ascribe to reason two functions, or two degrees. The first is to judge of things self-evident. The second is to draw conclusions that are not self-evident from those that are. The first of these is the province and the sole province of common sense, and therefore it coincides with reason in its whole extent and is only another name for one branch or degree of reason. Perhaps it may be said, why then should you give it a particular name, since it is acknowledged to be only a degree of reason? It would be sufficient to answer this, why do you abolish a name which is to be found in the language of all civilized nations, and has acquired a right by prescription? Such an attempt is equally foolish and ineffectual. Every wise man will be apt to think that a name which is found in all languages as far back as we can trace them is not without some use. But there is an obvious reason why this degree of reason should have a name appropriated to it, and that is, that in the greatest part of mankind, no other degree of reason is to be found. It is this degree that entitles them to the denomination of reasonable creatures. It is this degree of reason, and this only, that makes a man capable of managing his own affairs and answerable for his conduct towards others. There is therefore the best reason why it should have a name appropriated to it. These two degrees of reason differ in other respects which would be sufficient to entitle them to distinct names. The first is purely the gift of heaven, and where heaven has not given it, no education can supply the lack. The second is learned by practice and rules when the first is not lacking. A man who has common sense may be taught to reason, but if he has not that gift, no teaching will make him able either to judge of first principles or to reason from them. I have only this farther to observe, that the province of common sense is more extensive in refutation than in confirmation. A conclusion drawn by a train of just reasoning from true principles cannot possibly contradict any decision of common sense, because truth will always be consistent with itself. Neither can such a conclusion receive any confirmation from common sense because it is not within its jurisdiction. But it is possible that, by setting out from false principles or by an error in reasoning, a man may be led to a conclusion that contradicts the decisions of common sense. In this case, the conclusion is within the jurisdiction of common sense, though the reasoning on which it is grounded be not. And a man of common sense may fairly reject the conclusion without being able to show the error of the reasoning that led to it. Thus, if a mathematician, by a process of intricate demonstration, in which some false step was made, should be brought to this conclusion that two quantities, which are both equal to a third quantity, are not equal to each other, a man of common sense, without pretending to be a judge of the demonstration, is well entitled to reject the conclusion and to pronounce it absurd. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Reed explains his idea of first principles.
Essays on the Intellectual Powers of Man, still Essay 6, now Chapter 4 of First Principles in General. One of the most important distinctions of our judgments is that some of them are intuitive, others grounded on argument. It is not in our power to judge as we will. The judgment is carried along necessarily by the evidence, real or seeming, which appears to us at the time. But in propositions that are submitted to our judgment, there is this great difference. Some are of such a nature that a man of ripe understanding may apprehend them distinctly and perfectly understand their meaning without finding himself under any necessity of believing them to be true or false, probable or improbable. The judgment remains in suspense until it is inclined to one side or another by reasons or arguments. But there are other propositions which are no sooner understood than they are believed. The judgment follows the apprehension of them necessarily, and both are equally the work of nature and the result of our original powers. There is no searching for evidence, no weighing of arguments. The proposition is not deduced or inferred from another. It has the light of truth in itself and has no occasion to borrow it from another. Propositions of the last kind, when they are used in matters of science, have commonly been called axioms, and on whatever occasion they are used are called first principles, principles of common sense, common notions, self-evident truths. What has been said, I think, is sufficient to distinguish first principles or intuitive judgments from those which may be ascribed to the power of reasoning nor is it a just objection against this distinction that there may be some judgments concerning which we may be dubious to which class they ought to be referred. There is a real distinction between persons within the house and those that are outside it, yet it may be dubious to which the man belongs that stands upon the threshold. The power of reasoning, that is, of drawing a conclusion from a chain of premises, may with some propriety be called an art. All reasoning, says John Locke, is search and casting about and requires pains and application. It resembles the power of walking, which is acquired by use and exercise. Nature prompts to it and has given the power of acquiring it, but must be aided by frequent exercise before we are able to walk. After repeated efforts, much stumbling and many falls, we learn to walk and it is in similar manner that we learn to reason. But the power of judging in self-evident propositions, which are clearly understood, may be compared to the power of swallowing our food. It is purely natural, and therefore common to the learned and to the unlearned, to the trained and the untrained. It requires ripeness of understanding and freedom from prejudice, but nothing else. 
I take for granted that there are self-evident principles. Nobody, I think, denies it. And if any man were so skeptical as to deny that there is any proposition that is self-evident, I see not how it would be possible to convince him by reasoning. But yet there seems to be a great difference of opinions among philosophers about first principles. What one takes to be self-evident, another labors to prove by arguments, and a third denies altogether. It is likewise an important question whether the differences among men about first principles can be resolved. When, in disputes, one man maintains that to be a first principle, which another denies, commonly both parties appeal to common sense, and so the matter rests. Now, is there no way of discussing this appeal? Is there no mark or criterion whereby first principles that are truly such may be distinguished from those that assume the character without a just title? I shall humbly offer in the following propositions what appears to me to be agreeable to truth in these matters, always ready to change any opinion upon conviction. First, I hold it to be certain and even demonstrable that all knowledge got by reasoning must be built upon first principles. This is as certain as that every house must have a foundation. Power of reasoning in this respect resembles the mechanical powers of engines. It must have a fixed point to rest upon, otherwise it spends its force in the air and produces no effect. When we examine in the way of analysis the evidence of any proposition, either we find it self-evident or it rests upon one or more propositions that support it. The same thing may be said of the propositions that support it and of those that support them as far back as we can go. But we cannot go back in this track to infinity. Where, then, must this analysis stop? It is evident that it must stop only when we come to propositions which support all that are built upon them, but are themselves supported by none. That is to say, self-evident propositions. A second proposition is that some first principles yield conclusions that are certain, others such as are probable in various degrees, from the highest probability to the lowest. In just reasoning, the strength or weakness of the conclusion will always correspond to that of the principles on which it is grounded. As a matter of testimony, it is self-evident that the testimony of two is better than that of one, supposing them equal in character and in their means of knowledge. Yet the simple testimony may be true, and that which is preferred to it may be false. When an experiment has succeeded in several trials, and the circumstances have been marked with care, there is a self-evident probability of its succeeding in a new trial, but there is no certainty. The probability in some cases is much greater than in others, because in some cases it is much easier to observe all the circumstances that may have influence upon the event than in others. And it is possible that, after many experiments made with care, our expectation may be frustrated in a succeeding one by the variation of some circumstance that has not, or perhaps could not, be observed. In games of chance, it is a first principle that every side of a die has an equal chance to be turned up, and that, in a lottery, every ticket has an equal chance of being drawn out. From such first principles as these, which are the best we can have in such matters, 
we may deduce by demonstrative reasoning the precise degree of probability of every event in such games. But the principles of all this accurate and profound reasoning can never yield a certain conclusion, it being impossible to supply a defect in the first principles by any accuracy in the reasoning that is grounded upon them. As water, by its gravity, can rise no higher in its course than the fountain, however artfully it be conducted, so no conclusion of reasoning can have a greater degree of evidence than the first principles from which it is drawn. A third proposition is that it would contribute greatly to the stability of human knowledge and consequently to the improvement of it if the first principles upon which the various parts of it are grounded were pointed out and ascertained. A fourth proposition is that nature has not left us destitute of means whereby the candid and honest part of mankind may be brought to unanimity when they happen to differ about first principles. When men differ about things that are taken to be first principles or self-evident truths, reasoning seems to be at an end. Each party appeals to common sense. When one man's common sense gives one determination, another man's a contrary determination, there seems to be no remedy but to leave every man to enjoy his own opinion. This is a common observation, and, I believe, a just one, if it be rightly understood. It is in vain to reason with a man who denies the first principles on which the reasoning is grounded. Thus, it would be vain to attempt the proof of a proposition in the geometer Euclid to a man who denies the axioms of geometry. Indeed, we ought never to reason with men who deny first principles from obstinacy and unwillingness to yield to reason. But is it not possible that men who really love truth and are open to conviction may differ about first principles? I think it is possible, and that it cannot, without great want of charity, be denied to be possible. When this happens, every man who believes there to be a real distinction between truth and error, and that the faculties which God has given us are not in their nature fallacious, must be convinced that there is a defect or a perversion of judgment on one side or the other. A man of candor and humility will, in such a case, very naturally suspect his own judgment, so far as to be desirous to enter into a serious examination, even of what he has long held as a first principle. He will think it not impossible that, although his heart be upright, his judgment may have been perverted by education, by authority, by party zeal, or by some other of the common causes of error, from the influence of which neither parts nor integrity exempt the human understanding. In such a state of mind, so amiable and so becoming every good man, has nature left him destitute of any rational means by which he may be enabled either to correct his judgment if it be wrong, or to confirm it if it be right? I hope it is not so. I hope that, by the means which nature has furnished, controversies about first principles may be brought to a resolution, and that the real lovers of truth may come to unanimity with regard to them. It is true that, in other controversies, the process by which the truth of a proposition is discovered or its falsehood detected is by showing its necessary connection with first principles or its repugnancy to them. It is true, likewise, that when the controversy is whether a proposition be itself a first principle, this process cannot be applied. 
the truth, therefore, in controversies of this kind, labors under a peculiar disadvantage, but it has advantages of another kind to compensate for this. For, in the first place, in such controversies, every man is a competent judge, and therefore it is difficult to impose upon mankind. To judge of first principles requires no more than a sound mind, free from prejudice, and a distinct conception of the question. The learned and the unlearned, the philosopher and the day laborer, are upon a level and will pass the same judgment when they are not misled by some bias or taught to renounce their understanding from some mistaken religious principle. In matters beyond the reach of common understanding, the many are led by the few and willingly yield to their authority. But in matters of common sense, the few must yield to the many when local and temporary prejudices are removed. No man is now moved by the subtle arguments of the ancient philosopher Zeno that motion is impossible, though perhaps he knows not how to answer them. Secondly, we may observe that opinions which contradict first principles are distinguished from other errors by this, that they are not only false, but absurd. And to discountenance absurdity, nature has given us a particular emotion, to wit, the emotion of ridicule, which seems intended for this very purpose of putting out of our minds what is absurd, either in opinion or in practice. This weapon, when properly applied, cuts with as keen an edge as argument. Nature has furnished us with the first to expose absurdity as with the last to refute error. Both are well fitted for their several offices and are equally friendly to truth when properly used. Both may be abused to serve the cause of error, but the same degree of judgment which serves to detect the abuse of argument in false reasoning serves to detect the abuse of ridicule when it is wrongly directed. Some have from nature a happier talent for ridicule than others, and the same thing holds with regard to the talent of reasoning. Indeed, I conceive that there is hardly any absurdity which, when touched with the pencil of a Lucian, a Swift, or a Voltaire, would not be put out of countenance when there is not some religious panic or very powerful prejudice to blind the understanding. But it must be acknowledged that the emotion of ridicule, even when most natural, may be stifled by an emotion of a contrary nature and cannot operate till that is removed. Thus, if the notion of sanctity is annexed to an object, it is no longer a laughable matter, and this visor must be pulled off before it appears ridiculous. Hence we see that notions which appear most ridiculous to all who consider them coolly and indifferently have no such appearance to those who never thought of them but under the impression of religious awe and dread. But even where religion is not concerned, the novelty of an opinion to those who are too fond of novelties, the gravity and solemnity with which it is introduced, the opinion we have entertained of the author, its apparent connection with principles already embraced, or subserviency to interests which we have at heart, and above all, its being fixed in our minds at that time of life when we receive implicitly what we are taught, may cover its absurdity and fascinate the understanding for a time. 
But if ever we are able to view it naked and stripped of those adventitious circumstances from which it borrowed its importance and authority, the natural emotion of ridicule will exert its force. An absurdity can be entertained by men of sense no longer than it wears a mask. When any man is found who has the skill or the boldness to pull off that mask, it can no longer bear the light. It slinks into dark corners for a while, and then is no more heard of but as an object of ridicule. Thus I conceive that first principles, which are really the dictates of common sense and directly opposed to absurdities in opinion, will always, from the constitution of human nature, support themselves and gain rather than lose ground among mankind. Thirdly, it may be observed that, although it is contrary to the nature of first principles to admit of direct or apodictical proof, yet there are certain ways of reasoning even about them by which those that are just and solid may be confirmed and those that are false may be detected. It may here be proper to mention some of the topics from which we may reason in matters of this kind. First, it is a good argument ad hominem against the man that it can be shown that a first principle which a man rejects stands upon the same footing with others which he admits. For when this is the case, he must be guilty of an inconsistency who holds the one and rejects the other. Thus, the faculties of consciousness, of memory, of external sense, and of reason are all equally the gifts of nature. No good reason can be assigned for receiving the testimony of one of them which is not of equal force with regard to the others. The greatest skeptics admit the testimony of consciousness and allow that which it testifies to be held as a first principle. If, therefore, they reject the immediate testimony of sense or of memory, they are guilty of an inconsistency. Second, a first principle may admit of a proof ad absurdum, that is, an indirect proof, in this kind of proof, which is very common in mathematics, we suppose the contradictory proposition to be true. We trace the consequences of that supposition in a train of reasoning, and if we find any of its necessary consequences to be manifestly absurd, we conclude the supposition from which it followed to be false, and therefore its contradictory to be true. There is hardly any proposition, especially of those that may claim the character of first principles, that stands alone and unconnected. It draws many others along with it in a chain that cannot be broken. He that takes it up must bear the burden of all its consequences, and if that is too heavy for him to bear, he must not pretend to take it up. Thirdly, I conceive that the consent of ages and nations, of the learned and unlearned ought to have great authority with regard to first principles, where every man is a competent judge. Our ordinary conduct in life is built upon first principles, as well as our speculations in philosophy, and every motive to action supposes some belief. When we find a general agreement among men in principles that concern human life, this must have great authority with every sober mind that loves truth. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Reed answers an objection.
Here, perhaps it will be said, what has authority to do in matters of opinion? Is truth to be determined by most votes? Or is authority to again be raised out of its grave to tyrannize over mankind? I am aware that in this age, an advocate for authority has a very unfavorable plea, but I wish to give no more to authority than its due. Most justly do we honor the names of those benefactors to mankind who have contributed more or less to break the yoke of that authority which deprives men of the natural, the unalienable right of judging for themselves. And while we indulge a just animosity against this authority and against all who would subject us to its tyranny, let us remember how common the folly is of going from one faulty extreme into the opposite. Authority, though a very tyrannical mistress to private judgment, may yet, on some occasions, be a useful handmaid. This is all she is entitled to, and this is all I plead in her behalf. The justice of this plea will appear by putting a case in science in which, of all sciences, authority is acknowledged to have least weight. Suppose a mathematician has made a discovery in that science which he thinks important, that he has put his demonstration in just order, and after examining it with an attentive eye, has found no flaw in it, I would ask, will there not be still in his heart some diffidence, some jealousy, lest the passion of invention may have made him overlook some false step? This must be granted. He commits his demonstration to the examination of a mathematical friend whom he esteems a competent judge, and waits with impatience the result of his judgment. Here I would ask again whether the verdict of his friend, according as it is favorable or unfavorable, will not greatly increase or diminish his confidence in his own judgment. Most certainly it will, and it ought. If the judgment of his friend agrees with his own, especially if it be confirmed by two or three able judges, he rests secure of his discovery without farther examination. But if it be unfavorable, he is brought back into a kind of suspense until the part that is suspected undergoes a new and a more rigorous examination. I hope what is supposed in this case is agreeable to nature and to the experience of candid and modest men on such occasions. Yet here we see a man's judgment, even in a mathematical demonstration, conscious of some feebleness in itself, seeking the aid of authority to support it, greatly strengthened by that authority, and hardly able to stand erect against it without some new aid. Society, in judgment, of those who are esteemed fair and competent judges, has effects very similar to those of civil society. It gives strength and courage to every individual. It removes that timidity which is as naturally the companion of solitary judgment as of a solitary man in the state of nature. Let us judge for ourselves, therefore, but let us not disdain to take that aid from the authority of other competent judges, which a mathematician thinks is necessary to take in that science which, of all the sciences, has least to do with authority. In a matter of common sense, every man is no less competent a judge than a mathematician is in a mathematical demonstration, and there must be a great presumption that the judgment of mankind in such a matter is the natural issue of those faculties which God has given them. Such a judgment can be erroneous only when there is some cause of the error as general as the error is. 
When this can be shown to be the case, I acknowledge it ought to have its due weight. But to suppose a general deviation from truth among mankind in things self-evident of which no cause can be assigned is highly unreasonable. Perhaps it may be thought impossible to collect the general opinion of men upon any point whatsoever, and therefore that this authority can serve us in no stead in examining first principles, but I apprehend that, in many cases, this is neither impossible nor difficult. Who can doubt whether men have universally believed in the existence of a material world? Who can doubt whether men have universally believed that every change that happens in nature must have a cause? Who can doubt whether men have universally believed that there is a right and a wrong in human conduct, some things that merit blame, and others that are entitled to approval? The universality of these opinions, and of many such that might be named, is sufficiently evident from the whole tenor of human conduct as far as our acquaintance reaches, and from the history of all ages and nations of which we have any records. There are other opinions that appear to be universal from what is common in the structure of all languages. Language is the express image and picture of human thoughts, and from the picture we may draw some certain conclusions concerning the original. We find in all languages the same parts of speech. We find nouns, substantive and adjective, verbs, active and passive, and their various tenses, numbers, and moods. Some rules of syntax are the same in all languages. Now, what is common in the structure of languages indicates a uniformity of opinion in those things upon which that structure is grounded. The distinction between substances and the qualities belonging to them, between thought and the being that thinks, between thought and the objects of thought, is to be found in the structure of all languages, and therefore systems of philosophy which abolish these distinctions wage war with the common sense of mankind. We are apt to imagine that those who formed languages were no metaphysicians, but the first principles of all sciences are the dictates of common sense and lie open to all men. And every man who has considered the structure of language in a philosophical light will find infallible proofs that those who have framed it and those who use it with understanding have the power of making accurate distinctions and of forming general conceptions as well as philosophers. Nature has given those powers to all men, and they can use them when occasions require it, but they leave it to the philosophers to give names to them and to discourse upon their nature. In like manner, nature has given eyes to all men, and they can make good use of them, but the structure of the eye and the theory of vision is the business of philosophers. Fourthly, Opinions that appear so early in the minds of men that they cannot be the effect of education or of false reasoning have a good claim to be considered as first principles. Thus, the belief we have that the persons around us are living and intelligent beings is a belief for which perhaps we can give some reason when we are able to reason, but we had this belief before we could reason and before we could learn it by instruction. It seems, therefore, to be an immediate effect of our Constitution. The last topic I shall mention is, when an opinion is so necessary in the conduct of life that without the belief of it a man must be led into a thousand absurdities in practice, such an opinion, when we can give no other reason for it, may safely be taken for a first principle. Thus, I have endeavored to show that, although first principles are not capable of direct proof, 
Yet differences that may happen with regard to them among men of candor are not without remedy, that nature has not left us destitute of means by which we may discover errors of this kind, and that there are ways of reasoning with regard to first principles by which those that are truly such may be distinguished from vulgar errors or prejudices. This week's thinking music has been No Particular Reason by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Before we go, a couple of things. First of all, we got a new review in the iTunes store for the United States. The subject line says definitely five stars, and that's the rating they gave us. This is a user called Italian Swaggy. They say, Dale Tuggy often has on very interesting guests and covers a wide range of issues that you won't be able to find nearly anywhere else. Tuggy discusses many different points of views on the Trinity and Christological issues. He is balanced and does not spend his time trying to convert you to his view. He simply presents all the data and lets you make up your mind. Thank you, Italian Swaggy. Of course, I do sometimes get in there and make some arguments, but I do try to respectfully present other points of view as well. I consider that an act of respect to listeners like you. Finally, I'd like to thank Edmund and Stephen, who is in California, both of whom gave generous donations to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate it. And I hope that we hear from you on the blog or the Facebook group. Next week, more of the profound and careful epistemology of the Christian philosopher Thomas Reed. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.